Hi everyone, I'm Riley Blanks, your hostess and the creator of Woke Beauty, a storytelling platform reimagining the everyday act of self-celebration for and by all women. This show brings you unfiltered conversations with a dynamic myriad of female visionaries who have developed personal success despite trauma and hardship by leaning into grit and discernment. We explore the messy interwoven realities of mental health, holistic wellness, intricate family dynamics, racial complexity, and the exceptional discoveries that lead to fulfillment. This is our pledge to the power of resilience and the impact of perspective. Leah Thomas is an intersectional environmental activist and eco-communicator based in Southern California. She's passionate about advocating for and exploring the relationship between social justice and environmentalism. She graduated from Chapman University in 2017 with a BS in environmental science and policy with a cluster in comparative world religions. Leah is the founder of eco-lifestyle blog Green Girl Leah and the Intersectional Environmentalist Platform, which is a resource and media hub that aims to advocate for environmental justice and inclusivity within environmental education and movements. Her articles on this topic have appeared in Vogue, Elle, The Good Trade, and Youth to the People. Before pursuing environmentalism full-time, Leah worked for the National Park Service and Patagonia headquarters. Her mission is to inspire others to explore new places, live more sustainably, and practice radical self-acceptance. This conversation was recorded last fall on a rainy day in Austin while the sun shone brightly in Ventura. Leah, thank you so much for joining me today. Per usual, I would love to ask you where you were born and how you identify with that place. Yes, um, I'm from St. Louis, Missouri. Um, I grew up in a small suburb called Florissant. And I don't know, there's a certain charm about the Midwest that you just don't find other places. Like you kind of talk to your neighbors or, you know, you say hi to everyone. I think that was something that I missed when I moved to California. When I got to college, I would just say hi to people like multiple times throughout the day. And I remember one of my friends was like, Leah, I saw you like an hour ago. You don't have to say hi every time. And my little like Midwestern heart just shattered because I think it's just that charm and being nice, like very nice and personable for the most part in the Midwest. So I miss that. Um, that's where my family is. So it's a great, it's a great place. Um, I prefer Southern California. Things are great. I'm in Ventura right now. Thankfully, we can see the sky and it's less foggy um, and less smoky. Um, we've had a bunch of fires in Southern California, which has been such a bummer and pretty scary. But I think things are getting a bit better now. Yeah, I'm so glad. It's so devastating. I had a friend that said, like, due to the insanity of 2020, you would have thought that we would get a break on natural catastrophes. Like, humans, like, this is one area where you can just chill. You're not going to deal with any hurricanes, no fire. And it's like, no, this is the way of the world. <laughs> um, Mother Nature will do what she wants, you know? Exactly. How was it going to school? Like, was this college right for you? Did you feel like you got a lot out of it? I 
You know, it's interesting. So I started writing, I guess, professionally my sophomore year in college. It was pretty random. I was actually getting my hair done um, in Long Beach because I had to go far to find someone who could do my hair because I was going to school in Orange County. So I was in Long Beach getting my hair done in a natural hair um, studio. And I was talking about natural hair and how I wish people like didn't touch my hair and all that kind of stuff. And my hairstylist was like, oh, do you know this actress? Her name's Kimberly Elise. She's in the movie Dope and like this Tyler Perry movie. She's actually starting a website. You know, you might, maybe you could write for it. So then I was connected with Kimberly and I started writing for her site and writing for a lot of other publications in school. So I was already doing a lot of freelance work outside of college in the classroom. And I feel like that contributed to where I am now in my career. Um, what I'm thankful for school is I got to learn about environmental science. But honestly, since I was already writing, like, I don't know, when I got writing assignments at school, it didn't feel like it's not like it wasn't challenging per se, but I was already, you know, freelance writing kind of out in the real world. So long story short, I think I learned a lot about environmental science, but I learned a lot more outside of the classroom. I learned about social justice outside of the classroom. I learned about, you know, writing techniques outside of the classroom. So I'm happy I went for the environmental science classes, but honestly, I think that could have been summed up in maybe like two years, <laughs> like maybe a year. <laughs> Yeah, I feel you entirely on that. We uh, we really elevate traditional education, and I don't know. It's an it's an interesting system that I'm sure we could speak to even further. But I'm more curious how you how did you learn outside the classroom when it comes to sort of like write, writing techniques and the different things you listed. I'm curious how you gathered that information and wisdom. Um, so also my sophomore year, unfortunately, back home, that's when Ferguson happened. So I lived in Florissant, Missouri, which is about 10 minutes away from Ferguson. And that's kind of what sparked the Black Lives Matter movement as we know it. And that's also the same time that I started writing professionally, and I changed my major to environmental science and policy. So all of these things were happening at the same time. And while I was in California, kind of reflecting on what was going on back home in Ferguson, I feel like I did a deep dive into social justice, the Black Lives Matter movement, environmental justice, and I wasn't finding it in my classrooms. And understandably, like, it was really hard for me to focus. Like, I'm trying to learn. I'm in some random class all the while. Like, structures are burning down. Like, it's not funny, but, like... Like, how am I supposed to how am I supposed to focus? So obviously, I was more kind of focused on, okay, social justice, and that was all outside of the classroom. And I didn't know how to um, process my emotions. And what I felt like really helped was writing. Like I love journaling. Um, so then I wanted to see, oh, maybe I could start writing think pieces and try to find ways to communicate how I'm feeling to the world. So I was just writing a lot on my own blog, you know, submitting to random publications when I could that were kind of smaller, not getting paid a lot of the time back then. Um, but I think it was just a really therapeutic thing for me to be able to try to see like, how can I show people what I'm feeling and try to express not just how I'm feeling, but how some people in my community are also feeling right now. And then the more I wrote, 
And the more people would say, oh, you know, keep it up, keep it up, the more I just realized I really enjoyed it. And I just tried to refine my writing and I'm still refining my writing. But my ultimate goal is to take, you know, those complicated things that were really hard to process, whether it's environmental science or social injustice, and package it in a way that's really accessible. Because all these issues just felt so overwhelming to me when I was learning about them in school or by observing Ferguson. So I wanted to help explain it to other people. So it's kind of a challenge for me. I really enjoy it. Like, how can I take this big, complex topic and break it down so more people can understand? Because I just don't think, you know, having to be in college, that shouldn't be a barrier to people being able to have access to, you know, some of this information and it should be available to the masses. So yeah, that's what inspired me. And that's why I started writing. And that's why I just love doing it because it really feels like a challenge of like, how can I do this? How can I break it down? How can I explain? And it I'm just kind of a nerd in that way. I really, really enjoy it. <laughs> so. I think it's truly a skill. And especially in this realm, it's so misunderstood on a sort of like large scale. Um, I'm grateful that you've kind of taken it upon yourself to to really pursue it. I'm curious why environmental science, because when it comes to social injustice, especially um in regards to race, there's so many ways to sort of attack it. You know, there's so many different um, perspectives, even within the black community, right? We're not a monolith. And so I love that you found a niche and you've found something very specific that on its own needs recognition, but that you've been able to weave it into environmental injustice, right? And so um, I'd love to know why, like, where did that passion come from? And why did you pursue it, right? You could have just had the passion and then been like, okay, that's interesting, you know, but yeah. you've taken it so far. I think, hmm, I've always just really loved animals and ecosystems ecology. And I feel like going into the sciences was kind of a natural fit for me. I tried biology, but was gravitating towards like carbon sequestration and like trees. And I was like, okay, maybe I should study environmental science and policy. Um, so also it's funny because I wanted to change my major from biology to communications, but my mom is very traditional back home in St. Louis and was like, you need to be a science person. Just, you know, I don't know. She's very into education and like, whatever. So I had to pick a science major. Um, so I was like, mom, there's environmental science. Like this is a cool science. Um, so that's basically what happened there. And then I don't know. I think I was just so strongly influenced by Ferguson and felt like social justice as a whole was too overwhelming for me to think about. Like, I don't think I could fix everything involved in social injustice. So I realized, okay, maybe if I can find a niche where I can try to become really good at communicating and advocating for, that will feel, you know, less overwhelming. So that's why I really stuck with environmental justice because I felt like that's where I could utilize my strengths the most and my education. Um, instead of thinking about just solving social injustice as a whole, I wanted to take a small piece of that and focus in on environmental justice. Hmm. I love that perspective. I have been really fascinated with um, sort of the concept of protesting without actually going to a protest, you know? Um, and so I, I feel like in a way this is your form, you know, and it's, it's yeah. a really great example for, especially for young people who are kind of trying to figure out where they fit, you know, um, in our community. So I really, 
I really like that. And that's why I always say like writing is activism for me. And I think that artists right now, artists and creatives are really responsible for the revolution that we're seeing right now, like by creating these graphics and just social media was able to raise awareness for the Black Lives Matter movement, um, for the climate crisis. And I think people don't give artists and creatives enough credit. And sometimes people try to discredit other forms of activism that aren't holding the microphone and taking it out to the streets. Because for me, the pen and paper, that is my microphone. That is the way that I practice, you know, activism. And I want to show the younger generation that activism doesn't need to look a certain way and that we can all contribute whatever our strengths might be to what we're passionate about, whether that's writing, dancing, art, you know, protesting, policy, whatever it might be. We need everyone and it takes all of us. So, yeah. Yeah, I love that perspective. And I like that you there's so much hope and optimism, not just in your words, but in your voice. And I think it's so important because I do think sometimes we're told that we need to rest or we need to take a break or that it's not our responsibility. And mm -hmm. I think that's true to an extent. But I also love what you said about it. It is a duty, you know, and if we have the skill, you know, in in many ways, it's intrinsic, you know, then why, why not use it, you know? To that end, I would love to know your perspective on social media. It can be exhausting, um, especially for those of us who use it to enact change. And yeah. so I'd love to know how you balance being present and active with also taking care of yourself and stepping back for your mental health. Yeah, I think something that has been odd lately is that my platform kind of exploded in May because I posted something about like my definition of intersectional environmentalism. I didn't know that that wasn't like a thing. So all of a sudden it's going viral and I'm getting thousands of followers, a lot of visibility really quickly. And it helps that I was in, you know, that I was at home. So I didn't have to go out into the public and experience that. Like I think that would have been really overwhelming because I'm doing a lot of speaking engagements. And if all of a sudden I had to fly around the country and the world, I think that would have just been a bit too much. Thankfully, mm. being at home has helped me create better boundaries with social media. Something that's happening lately is, um, I don't know, like I'm starting to get a lot of people who don't, like they're just very nitpicky with my content. And I think, I don't know if there's just a certain threshold on social media where people stop seeing you as a human being and just start commenting on random things like, oh, well, I don't like your nose. I don't like your hair. I don't like this, like things that are completely unrelated. Um, and especially as we get closer to the election, I'm getting a lot of people who just really hate everything that I'm talking about, or maybe on another you know, the opposite side of the political spectrum. So I'm really trying to set boundaries by not responding to every comment, deleting comments if they are, you know, inappropriate. I'm all for dialogue, but I don't have to tolerate or give my emotional labor to things that I don't see fit. Um, that really angers people because they also expect activists to engage with each and every comment. Um, so it has been a struggle to be completely honest, just trying to wade through all of that and wade through, um, I've gotten my first reaction YouTube videos to some of my content where people are like talking about me and like analyzing my videos. And it's just very, it's cool, but it's also very strange to me because, um, I don't think that's, that's typical, I guess. It's kind of like a, it's a weird experience that I'm going through right now. And I'm just trying to have good boundaries. 
Yeah. Um, hmm. It's a very mature take. How, so how do you make the decision like this? This belongs here. This doesn't belong here. This is important. This isn't. Um, I usually pick one or two examples. So I might respond to like two people. So if someone's saying something just really problematic, well, I guess it varies. Okay, so there's people who say things that are just inappropriate, um, that are mean and that are demeaning, and I don't feel like looking at it. So sometimes I'll delete it. When I don't, I realize that my followers will respond anyway. So I don't really need to get in there and fight because thankfully I have a great community of people that will get on there and be like, Leah doesn't have to give her emotional labor to you. And it's like really sweet. Um, But sometimes I'll just delete it. You know, when I do delete comments, people get mad and start saying, you're silencing me, you're silencing me. But I think they forget that I am not a government agency or entity. I am a person with a social media page that can censor if I'd like. And it's not like I'm even censoring. I'm taking away mean-spirited comments that I don't think deserve space on my platform. So when people are like, freedom of speech, it's like, yeah, totally. You have freedom of speech to say whatever you want. But also, this is my platform. This is my page. And I don't have to allow people to take up real estate on my page by saying things that can be offensive to me and other people, especially because I have a really large following of a lot of other black girls that are really interested in the outdoors and environmentalism and sustainability. I don't need them to be triggered by my comment section as well. And I would rather protect Mm. their peace and my own peace. Um, So that's when I delete. But if someone's asking a question that a lot of people are asking that still feels a little problematic, whatever, I might just respond to that one comment just so people have reference of how I would respond to something similar. And then I won't respond to any of the other ones or maybe I'll delete them if they're super ignorant Um, because I think it's good to have that dialogue, especially my followers when they see the way that people are responding to me. Um, I think it helps them get a bigger picture of like what a lot of Black women kind of go through out in the world, just trying to exist and be ourselves. Like even if I just post a picture of me hanging out, I might get comments about the fact that I have braids and have extensions and that's terrible for the environment. Therefore, I'm not an activist. And it's like having that there sometimes I think is good for people to understand what a lot of people of color go through on the daily basis. But um, I don't know. I guess I've just tried to understand that the people who are commenting those things, they're probably going through something. Um, They're probably realizing that we're human and that we're people they've got something internally that whatever I comment is not going to change so I just try to send a good vibe their way and move along and not let it take up too much of my time Um, because it seems like people are just trying to provoke me at this point because my content is usually pretty positive and I'm just not going to give into that anymore because some people just seem to be provocative and they know exactly what they're doing and they ju- it's just not worth responding. And it makes them even mm. mad that I don't respond. So I think it's kind of funny. <laughs> <laughs> it is like, yeah. At the end of the day, you just can't take yourself too seriously or, or really any of it, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. So I, it's so interesting. I didn't even think about your hair. That's that's <laughs> crazy. I mean, someone had to really think about that, you know? Um, Dang, I can't anyway. <laughs> <laughs> so it's a strange dichotomy. Um to visibly stand out, right, in like a, an all too often whitewashed space, um, while also feeling invisible, like your your like your voice isn't heard or like what you stand for isn't being acknowledged. 
How do you navigate that? I know you've spoken about it in the workplace, but now that we're talking about social media, I'm also curious how you how you've navigated it there. How have you made your voice heard as advocation for the rest of us, really, um, while also, uh, I don't know, you know, finding a way to kind of integrate yourself Mm. into the space? Yeah, I think something that I've been thinking about lately is that I don't like something that the mainstream media is kind of doing with me, um, positioning me as like the black girl in sustainability. And it seems like they're also picking kind of lighter skin black women. They keep positioning us as like, these are the black girls. of sustain-. And it's just, it's not okay because there's a lot of colorism at play there, which I absolutely don't like. And I also want to be able to use my platform to show people that I am not the only and there are so many other people that are interested in this work and doing this work. So that's just something that I'm trying to be really intentional about now that I am getting a big platform, really sharing that space with other people and making sure that not all of these opportunities are coming to me. um, Because it is kind of frustrating that it seems like brands see me as palatable for whatever reason. And I don't know if that's just, oh, she worked to Patagonia or she did this, but that. And I get it. It's cute. But I just hope that my followers, this isn't really answering the question, but they understand, like you said earlier, like we are not a monolith. I am just one very small, 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 small expression of blackness. Like my methods are not the only way to do activism. Just because I have a certain outlook and perspective doesn't mean that other perspectives aren't valid. So I just hope people Um, are also interested in finding some of these other incredible Black women that have been in this space and have been doing the work for a long time. Um, So as my platform grows, I think that's something that I'm really becoming aware of um, and the responsibility of like being given this platform to make sure that I'm sharing it with other people as well and making sure to credit all the people that came before me in this process as well. Because yeah, that is kind of frustrating when people are seeing me as palatable. And I think it's just because I went to um, school in primarily white environments. So I know like I code switch, but again, that's a survival mechanism and I'm still black. You know, my parents are both mm-hmm. black, still black through and through. Um, but that's just something that I'm trying to navigate right now. How, so it's interesting thinking about everything that you're saying. You've, you've been picked apart for your looks and yet you're being elevated in mainstream media. So I don't know what comes to mind is self-esteem. So on, on one side, it can, it can kind of crush you, you know, on the other side, it's super flattering. Right. So how do you, how do you stay humble? Um, you know, where in a space where you're really being lifted to a higher platform while also maintaining love for yourself in a space where people are trying to pull you down? Um, I think I just try to not take myself too seriously. And thankfully I have family and friends who will like humble me real quick Also something that I really appreciate about my mom and the way that she raised my sister and I, um, it was the compliments. Of course, she would say like, oh, you all are cute. But the main compliments that she would give us growing up were you are smart, you are intelligent, you are a leader. And it was something where she placed a lot of value on those attributes and everything else was like kind of secondary. Um, So I think that upbringing really helped me stay focused and just remind myself you know, like I am smart, you know, I get, I get imposter syndrome sometimes, but reminding myself like, no, my mom raised me to be a leader. My mom, my grandma and my great grandmother are all black women who are leaders and I can look up to them. And that keeps me really inspired. Um, In terms of my self-esteem, 
I'm just trying not to read the comments as much. I just try to turn them off. People say some really ignorant things sometimes. Um, I do struggle with it because I'm human, of course, but um, I don't know. I think at 25, and hopefully this continues on into my 30s, but I'm just getting more confident with who I am as a person. Like, I'm probably not going to change. My face is probably, you know, this is going to be my face. This is going to be my nose. This is going to be, this is what, you know, the universe just gave me. So I'm working with it. Um, And I think because I'm doing so many public engagements, I'm tired. I don't have time to pretend to be someone else. So I'm just being myself as much as humanly possible. Um, And it's funny. It's because I'm tired. Like I don't have time to pretend. Mm. Just trying to be myself and hope that you know some people like it but I also have a really good understanding that there will be people who just don't like me even if they just don't like the way my voice sounds they don't like the way I communicate my messages and I have to be okay with that um so yeah yeah how do you deal with being tired <laughs> how do you deal with like being tired and still having so much more to do and so many more places to show up in Yeah, I really try to, so I have an assistant and I have a management team. So that's really helpful. They like coordinate a lot of logistics. I'm trying to allocate responsibilities out to other people. And this is obviously from a place of privilege, but also taking time off. Like now that I'm kind of my own boss, I can just block off my schedule for a week and recharge if needed. Um, So that's what I try to do throughout the day. I try to have a couple blocks that are just for rest whether it's, okay, I'm blocking out an hour for lunch and I'm blocking out an hour just to sit on the couch and watch Real Housewives of Potomac. And (laughs) having those blocks in my schedule, I feel like really protects me. Um, And when I get really tired, I think I just, I try to listen to my body. My mom is a therapist, so there's no stigma associated with mental health, like in my family and in my current household. So I try to just listen to what my body is telling me. I think the body will tell you what it needs. When I'm tired, I get migraines. When I'm hungry, I get lightheaded. So I just try to listen to my body because when I ignore my body, that's when things go wrong. And that means taking a nap when I'm tired, cranky, and just really listening. Yeah, that's beautiful. This episode is in partnership with CamilleStyles.com, an online publication for everyone who aspires to a life well-lived. Every day, Camille Styles provides engaging storytelling and imagery to inspire the pursuit of your passions on the path to creating the best version of yourself. My series, Beyond Skin Deep on CamilleStyles.com, serves as a visual representation of Woke Beauty podcast features. The column showcases stories from creators, makers, and community shapers, female visionaries who seamlessly bridge holistic health, authentic inclusivity, conscious artistry, and a unique path to healing and restoration. The best stories are told across the spectrum. Here you hear her, there you see her. To read more and to see vivid photographs of our guests taken by yours truly, visit CamilleStyles.com. It's really easy to, to, to feel a sense of hopelessness, all of us are feeling it. I think we've gotten to a point now in this crazy climate. A lot of people are feeling flat and low and we're just like, when will this end? You know, when it comes to environmental injustice, it, it feels the same. I'd love to know how you respond to the overwhelm of issues. 
Um, yeah, eco-anxiety and like social justice anxiety are very real. Um, so I think I have to create boundaries. Like I was saying earlier, like there's so much bad happening in the world, but then also reminding myself there's so much good that's happening. And maybe I might have to search a little bit deeper if the media isn't reporting on it, but there is a lot of good and a lot of joy. Um, so I try to practice a lot of gratitude for the things that I do have, even just living in Southern California and mostly having access to clean air and reminding myself of these things. Like I'm just so grateful to be able to see the sun rise and set every day and then knowing that there are these other really big problems that are going on but also giving myself the permission to distance myself because if I stay on Twitter all day reading the trending topics if I go through the news all day it becomes really overwhelming and that overwhelm can be really debilitating to the point where I start experiencing apathy and I'm not feeling you know as connected to the things that I care about so I just give my permission, give myself permission to tune out and not overwhelm myself with it and step away and experience joy, because I think joy is also an act of radical resistance um, to the world that we live in. So I try to find joy and rest so I can not feel so overwhelmed. Yeah. And so when it comes to sustainability specifically, um, it's generally not marketed to Black communities and those same communities aren't re rewarded or even just recognized for how sustainable their lifestyles are just by nature of living. I'm curious how you're working to solve those issues and, and how other people can, can work alongside you. Hmm, that's a great question. I think in a lot of my presentations or conversations, I try to, hmm, because I think solving climate change, shaming people sometimes isn't the best approach and also like i don't want anyone shaming the black community right now because the black community in large part in the united states is not responsible for the climate crisis like shame the industry not individuals and instead of just shaming or walking into the black community and saying well this is what you're not doing about sustainability this is what's going wrong like you said earlier reclaiming what we are already doing and revalidating some cultural traditions that are inherently sustainable in the first place, even if it isn't always recognized in textbooks. So an exercise I really like to do um, when I'm meeting with groups, especially um, groups of BIPOC people of color is saying like, what are some cultural traditions that your family members did um, that might not be considered sustainable in textbooks, but is a sustainable practice? And then people are like, oh, like, my cookie tin that my mom uses and repurposes for sewing materials or my butter container that my grandma uses as Tupperware. Oh, we've been thrift shopping since forever, not because it was trendy, but because we had to. So just thinking about those things and the things people are already doing, I think that sets people up to feel more empowered. And when people feel empowered, they're more likely to do research and then start thinking about, oh, okay, let's think about our neighborhoods. You know, having a community garden would be really great. Or what are some resources that we can have to help address the environmental injustices and also mental health issues? Like maybe that means we need more green spaces and kind of thinking about that. And then with that empowerment and education comes advocacy. And I think people are more likely to act if that's kind of the pathway of knowledge. Um, but yeah, those are just a couple thoughts. Hmm. And how would you say we protect marginalized communities? Like, 
specifically from the climate crisis, looking at COVID-19 and, and who it's really affected, um, we can, can see a lot of danger, yeah. um, specifically just around mortality, right? So what are ways that we can reverse the issues that, that presently stand? Mm-hmm. I think a good place is just a, to start is acknowledgement. It's hard to address the issues when people are blatantly ignoring the fact that the same communities are being impacted by all of these different things like police brutality, the healthcare system, COVID, respiratory illnesses, and environmental injustice. And it seems like some people are still trying to make it seem like a coincidence that maybe the Black community is being disproportionately impacted. So I think a good place to start is just getting more data about um, how these things keep overlapping and how these disproportionalities keep appearing in different spaces, because it's hard to ignore that solid, concrete data. Can you explain the significance behind the question, I can't breathe, or the statement, I can't breathe? You've spoken about, I, I've, I've listened to what you've said about that statement and how you've kind of connected it to different issues and, and movements. Can you explain that more in depth? Yeah, so... We can look at it through, so currently, unfortunately, um, so there's a lot of videos of Black death, which are incredibly traumatic, um, where people, their last words are, I can't breathe, because they're being, um, they're victims of police brutality or excessive force and violence that is cutting off their airways. So there's that literal thing from the criminal justice system being unjust. And then, so that's making it harder for people to breathe. And then when we, when we think about the Black community and communities of color being disproportionately exposed to particulate matter or poor air quality, that's making it harder for people to breathe and is leading to actually increased instances of asthma and respiratory illness, which is especially bad because right now in a pandemic, we have a virus that is attacking the respiratory system and making it harder for people to breathe again. So there's kind of these three different things um, that are adding up on top of each other that are making it harder for Black people to be able to breathe and exist. And if people can't breathe, which is a basic need, then how are they going to be able to experience joy in this world or be able to thrive if their basic needs aren't being met? Mm. Yeah, that's so deep. I um, I think it's really important for people to hear because there are many claims that those being affected by COVID-19 to the highest degree have underlying conditions. And it's sometimes said as if like those people don't matter, you know? So um, yeah, I think it's really important to address the reality, you know? frustrating to me because it's like, what if that underlying health condition is because they're being disproportionately impacted by having particulate matter in their air and they're not connecting it back to the systemic issues? So yeah, I totally feel you on that. Yeah. It's, it's like, they're just looking at paper. They're not thinking about like where the paper came from. (laughs) (laughs) So how did you develop intersectional environmentalists overnight? I, it's so cool how I first got acquainted with you. It was through Deandra. Um, who I just got connected with through social media, the, the powerful platform of Instagram. Yeah. And um, I remember when she first told me about it, she was like, and I didn't even really know her, you know, this is like one of our initial calls. And it was so neat to hear the story and to hear more about how you've grown and blossomed. Um, and it's crazy how it just kind of like sprouted 
you know? Um, so I'd love to hear, I know that social media is, is a big tool, but I'd love, I'd love to hear more of the story behind yeah. what in sexual environmentalist is. So I know a lot of people might want to want to hear more about it and, and how it, it became the, the vast large thing it is now. Yeah, I think so in May, that post that I was referencing, um, the graphic that I posted that went viral about intersectional environmentalism, I was starting to get a bunch of followers and it felt cool, but also unfair because like I said, I didn't want to be tokenized as the only person or like the leading voice in this space. So I was really thinking of ways like how can I create some sort of separate entity that is not just about me, but its sole purpose is about uplifting other people who are doing this work people that have historically been doing this work for a long time. How can we develop community in that way? So I was thinking about that all the while. Um, Deandra and Sabs, a friend of mine, and Phil were all in Austin at a Black Lives Matter protest together. And we just happened to FaceTime. And we all kind of at the same time were like, can we do this? Can we can we do something? Like maybe, maybe we could like do a website <laughs> or like an Instagram page. And within a week, we set up the Instagram and the first iteration of the website. Um, and we really just wanted to, I was getting a lot of messages from people like, what is intersectional environmentalism? Ah, like, what can I read? What can I write? What can I watch? What can I do? What can I support? So we just wanted to create some sort of resource to help legitimize intersectional environmentalism to provide people with direction of like, okay, please watch Kimberly Crenshaw's talk on intersectionality as a starting point. Here are some organizations that might not receive a lot of funding. Here's an Alaska Native environmental organization or a small food project in like Brooklyn that you can check out. We wanted to find these niche resources because with the Black Lives Matter movement, we were seeing a lot of companies and they should, but donating huge amounts to like three groups um, like the NAACP, directly to Black Lives Matter, and then maybe the ACLU, which is great. But then we were wondering, like, what about all these smaller organizations and environmental organizations that might need funding as well? So that's why we, we feature nonprofits and things like that. But long story short, Intersectional Environmentalist is just a platform, an educational tool for people to be able to learn about environmental justice and dive really deep into privilege and how that plays a part and who's able to develop a relationship with mother nature. Um, and we're doing that through different creative mediums. Like we'd love to get into more media, more film projects and things like that. But right now we're just doing a lot of creative um, graphics. And we've actually gotten some pushback from people who are like, your graphics are too pretty. Nah. <laughs> like, what? People are like really upset. And I think the thing is because we realize like my post went viral. So let's repeat that to quickly gain a following. And I don't care like if we package something in pink colors and that means that people might give a shit about environmental justice, then we are going to have a pink graphic. If that means that a middle schooler in like Pennsylvania is going to learn about the history of intersectionality in Kimberly Crenshaw, then heck yes, we're going to make these cute graphics to really help flip the Instagram algorithm on its head, have visually appealing things that will be really shareable, but we're going to start populating it with information about environmental justice so we can like be a platform that raises awareness about those things. Um, so yeah, that's what we're doing. That's what we're up to and just trying to explore how to get bigger and really find a way to 
Um, our biggest priority is wealth distribution and making sure that we're able to funnel those funds to activists that are on the ground and groups that might not be getting a lot of funding. We're starting to do partnerships, which is another thing people might be like, why are you doing partnerships? But it's kind of like, you know, um, I'm a progressive and I would like to take money from the top and like reallocate it down. Um, so yeah, that's something that we're doing. Mm, I love hearing those tactics. It reminds me of, you know, I think your face performs like 30 to 40% better or something. And, and so I feel that way too. When I, when it comes to when I have things to say, I'm not afraid to use myself as sort of like the catalyst or the vehicle if that's what it takes to get people to look, you know? Um, So, so yeah, I love that you spoke to that and I, that's so bizarre to me. I love your graphics and uh, yeah, I'm glad that you've not let that phase you. (laughs) Um, That's so crazy. It's funny. I get it, but I think that's another thing that I wanted to kind of speak about. I think intersectional environmentalist is not the first of its kind, but it is, kind of new territory because it's like an environmental justice organization that is an educational platform that is really catered to kind of like Gen Z and millennials in a way. So I think when people are coming to us, it might be one of their first experiences like this online, that's this niche. And then they expect us to be everything and more. But I hope that other organizations that are similar to us that have different tactics also begin to pop up as well. So people understand like we can't be everything. And I think a lot of people want us to be everything. They want us to be, you know, promoting allyship. And then some people want us to be incredibly like militant. And then some people want us to be more policy focused and other people want us to be more solutions focused. And we're really dabbling in those different things, but I want to, I want to let people know, like we're just three months old, we're new and we can't be everything, but we'll try our very best to be, you know, who we are and we're still defining what we want to be. And I hope people give us a little bit of patience and don't get too irritated with our pretty graphics. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's really not the point, right? (laughs) How would you say, we talked about learning earlier on, how do you continue to grow? You're so well-spoken. Um, you're well-educated, but but you're wise and you're a baby. You know, if, if you live to 100, you're only a quarter there. So what do you consume? Who do you listen to? And how do you decide what decisions to make, right? Like we've talked about this before on the podcast. I don't know if there's any good or bad. There's just nurturing or lack thereof. Um, and so where, where do your decisions lie? I know, I'm sure you have some good mentors, but within yourself, like at the heart of Leah, how are you growing and how are you pursuing this radical change that you're making on the planet and in our community? I mean, honestly, I think I said this earlier, but what I like to live by is just progress over perfection. Like I'm a recovering perfectionist. So I really just try to give myself grace and, um, empathy towards myself. And when I'm able to do that for me, it's easier for me to do that to others because when I'm judgmental towards myself and I'm judgmental towards others. And then if I'm nitpicking myself, I'm nitpicking others and I'm not able to tap into joy the way that I'd like to. So I think internally, I just try to remind myself that I'm so human and the human experience is 
you know, there's lots of ups and downs and not to be too hard on myself. Um, I failed a lot. And I think I had a really big failure kind of earlier in my 20s. That was my first relationship like breakdown. And after that, it was so great. And it's not like I want everyone to be heartbroken, but it helped me see like what was on the other side of that and to just be appreciative for failure because it taught me so much about myself and who I want to be and who I don't want to be. So I think that moment really just chilled me out and let me know that I don't need to be perfect. And that's how I'm able to kind of just keep doing this work that I love. And um, a really great mentor of mine, his name is Rick Ridgway. And he was a former professional climber and an executive at um, Patagonia when I worked there. And I was his assistant and he just carried himself so humbly. He never really acted like, oh, I'm Rick. I summited K2. Like, I'm that guy. You know, so it was cool just being able to see him being such a normal human being and not taking himself too seriously. And that's what I would like to embody. No matter how big my platform gets, I'm still just a person at the end of the day, a pretty nerdy person, in fact. So just not really taking myself too seriously. How do you think about sustainability big picture if we're like wrapping all this up in a pretty bow, um, (laughs) in a pretty graphic? (laughs) Um, (laughs) And what do you recommend for those that are looking to contribute to the movement? Um, I think just, yeah, individual actions really add up. I think sometimes it gets paralyzing, like, oh, well, if I do something, it's not going to make a difference. But I would rather see like a million imperfect environmentalists and sustainability enthusiasts and like five militant like living perfectly and existing off of sunshine and water alone. Like that's <laughs> probably not healthy. Um, So I think in the sustainability space, if we can be a little bit more open um, to, like I said earlier, revalidating cultural norms and traditions that were already inherently sustainable and making sure that we're also seeing all the grandmothers and abuelas out there as being pioneers of sustainability and conservation. Um, And then in addition to that, just giving each other a lot of grace and compassion Um, because I think that'll help even more people be interested in sustainability as a whole. Um, And then in addition to that, I think there's kind of a gravitation towards regenerative agriculture right now and regenerative living. So living in a way that replenishes our foundations, like the soil. So if we're gardening or planting or whatever, gardening in a way um, where the land isn't destroyed in that process, because that can actually suck a lot of carbon out of the atmosphere and help mitigate the impacts of climate change. So I think that is the future. I think intersectionality is the future and regenerative agriculture and regenerative living is the future. That was intersectional environmental activist and eco-communicator Leah Thomas. You can find Leah on Instagram at greengirlleah. Thank you so much for joining us. You can connect with us on Instagram at WokeBeauty or me at Riley Blanks and learn more at WokeBeauty.com. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and leave a review on Apple Podcasts. It helps a lot. Until next time, have a beautiful day, even if it's not that beautiful. Uh.